0: So we are going to turn our attention to Joseph, and I've given us a few classes for this upcoming um, date. So next week is Halloween, so we won't be meeting. Two weeks is just FYI, we're meeting like normal, but that's um, Pat's memorial concert in the evening. I know the choir folks will be at dress rehearsal in the afternoon. Listen, even if Mozart requiems are not your thing, I would highly recommend coming to the service if you at all can. It's going to be awesome. So we have, um, I think, uh, all the musicians, even the ones that are not attached to our congregation, not members of our congregation, are donating their time in memory of Pat, who was you know, an icon around here, certainly in our community and in some respects nationwide. So that is gonna be awesome. It's gonna start at 6.30, and it'll probably go to at least eight. I think we already checked. It does not conflict with the Cowboys game, as I understand. I think, I think, <laughs> I think the Cowboys play Monday. Um, and then, so three weeks from now, it's Don's celebration. Please help me remind everybody, one service, 10 a.m. in the sanctuary, um, and then a reception to follow. The bishop's gonna be here. Yeah, there will not be, there will not be. A nursery for little, real littles, but okay. And then it's, you know, off to the races for the holidays, which is my favorite time of year. All right, Joseph. So are you guys pretty familiar with the Joseph cycle? Everybody know, I mean, I think most of us know the basics of the story. Starts in 37. And um, here's, historically, there are a couple things that we need to keep in mind here. If you read it in preparation for today, and if you haven't, I would recommend it. I would re- recommend reading the whole thing on your own. You'll see that there are a couple of stories that are like, where'd that come from? It's like Monty Python, and now for something completely different. The, the Judah and Tamar thing, total, total diversion from the story. Um, but when you read that Joseph cycle, it is very different than everything that's come before. So the the other patriarchal stories are um, starting with the story of Abraham I'm talking about. So we already talked about prehistory. That's its own thing. Once you begin with the story of Abraham in 12 and go through 36, so you get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those stories are pretty clearly um, not a conflation, um, a weaving together of multiple traditions. And you can see there's some places it repeats and some places it sounds different than something that came right before it. I mean, it's very clearly a couple of different narratives that are woven together, maybe as many as three. The Joseph cycle is not like that. So Joseph cycle was probably written, um, I mean, I'll put it this way, it, it was uh, in Solomon's era. So it's probably written, as, so after David consolidates the kingdom, Solomon of course is the great builder that's really the, the high water mark of the wealth and influence of the unified kingdom, because right after Solomon, the kingdom falls apart. It's during this era most likely that the Joseph cycle is put down on papyrus. It's probably one author or at least one editor who's telling the story as, he, as it's been received to him. So unlike the other stuff from 12 to, to 36, this isn't one editor pulling together four different or three different like parallel path narratives. This is one story that one school or one person is kind of uh, putting together into a short story. It's really well told. Um, and it is, whereas the Abraham cycle really <clears throat> emphasizes faith and trust, you know, we've got these themes that are occurring of promise and blessing. And even though the stories are—it's um, pretty clearly a an assembly of disparate material. It's it all points to these same kind of themes. So there's promise and blessing of Abraham and his and his heirs, um, and the requirement from them is faith and trust. That's not really much of a highlight in the in the Joseph cycle. It's not really much of an emphasis. the The main theological point of this story is providence, which is the sometimes hidden. Uh, influence of a sovereign God through the workings of humanity. And there are a couple of places where the narrative is just going to come out and say that, and we'll, that, that'll be a couple weeks down the road. But uh, just keep just keep an eye on that as we're reading. This, The point of providence, among other things, is that God's will prevails in the end, despite our best efforts to thwart it <laughs> in some cases. The other thing is that the Joseph cycle ends up being a transition story between uh, the promise and captivity. So we, we, God calls Abraham from his home, delivers him to the promised land. His heirs, uh, Isaac and Jacob, are um, Isaac's kind of a muted character as we've talked about, Jacob. Ends up getting into a fair amount of conflict. Has to go back to the homeland at first, but ends up returning wealthy and ready to live into this promise. Exodus, of course, is all about captivity and our delivery from it—the major event in the Old Testament, other than the exile. And so, this is um, the transition piece that gets us from the the delivery of the promise in the promised land. How do we end up in Egypt exactly? <laughs> so. There's that going on. It also reads a lot more like the David narrative in 2 Samuel. Like if you were to, to read that story, which was also written during, a, um, uh, during the reign of a king, like during the uh, royal era, Joseph cycle really does read like that as well. And uh, it's, some of it is in, inside baseball, like the cupbearer of the Pharaoh and these officials that have uh, specific titles. None of that obviously was a concern of the patriarchs. So Brueggemann wrote something that was pretty interesting in his um, commentary. He he writes this. It's an extended quote, but I'm going to read it. So the Joseph narrative in its main parts, so we'll set aside Judah and Tamar and some other weird stuff that makes it way in there. The Joseph narrative is not a collection of unordered tribal memories which have come together in a relatively undisciplined way, as is the case with Genesis 12 through 36. So these different tribal stories that kind of get mashed together to tell one macro story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rather, the Joseph narrative is a sustained and artistically crafted statement of considerable literary finesse. It really is extremely well told, it really is. The shaper of this narrative is not simply an arranger of old traditions, but a genuine creator who fashions a new statement with a programmatic theological intent. So this is one author making a theological point that has everything to do with providence. Now, um, I don't want us to get too bogged down in did this story actually happen exactly the way it's told. I mean, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> really. Probably, in some form or fashion, Joseph ends up being a favored son in Egypt through providence. Um, but ultimately, the point that's being made here is the theological one. Not in a dissimilar way to the the earlier stuff in the, in the prehistory where the theological point is much more important than the details of, you know, how tall was the Tower of Babel. I don't know. What color were Adam's and, Adam and Eve's eyes? I don't know. Not the point. The, the difference is Joseph was a historical character and everything from Abraham on is, I mean, this is historical material, but it's still being shaped in a way to make theological points. And then if you want to write, if you guys are taking any notes, so the, the two... Passages, um, verse sets of verses that really interpret the whole story, uh, and we'll get there in a couple weeks. Forty-five, chapter forty-five, verses four to eight, and then chapter fifty, verses nineteen and twenty. God intended it for good. It's a famous, famous verse from um, for, uh, chapter forty-five, verses four to eight. So these are the the the, um, the passages that really make the theological point. Like kind of a little mini summary of the theological point he's trying to make. Yeah. Okay. Any questions about all that? Yeah, 50, 19, and 20. All righty. 37. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived in alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children <laughs> because he was the son of his old age. And he had made him a long robe with sleeves. This is the amazing technicolor green coat. I don't know what it is about this family <laughs> with this favoritism stuff. That is a poisonous, um, i must say character defect in families. The best explanation of this, so when we had Max, I did not think I could ever love another human being as much as I loved him. Like, I really, I really thought, I'm not sure I can have another kid. I, I, don't, I can't imagine, and all you experienced parents know exactly what I'm talking about. I can't imagine I will know, love another human being as much as I love this person. I mean, Whitney is my partner in life. That's a whole different thing. Uh, and we uh, have, a ther- have a therapist friend. I've been to plenty of therapists over the years, but this was, just, this was just a friend. And she said, yeah, but Chris, it's not like it's one piece of pie that you've got to divvy up among your next children. It's every kid gets its own pie. Like, it's just different pie. And one might be cherry pie, and one might be pumpkin pie. But, you know, it's not a matter of, you don't have a finite amount of love to give your children. I thought, that's pretty good. Uh, Jacob needed, Israel needed that kind of therapy. (laughs) 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 As did Isaac and Rebecca, And the whole Sarah and Hagar thing is a little more complicated. Anyway, so we already know, just based on the first 36 chapters of this book, that that's not going to end well. Right, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. (laughs) Now, I will say, Joseph doesn't really have the best filter. (laughs) You don't have to tell your brothers, hey, God told me you guys are all going to bow down to me. But that's neither here nor there. He said to them, listen to this dream that I dreamed. There were binding, there we were binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright and then your sheaves gathered, gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. He had another dream and told it to his brothers saying, look, I've had another dream. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What kind of dream is this that you've had? Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow down to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him because his father kept the matter in mind. All this is going to happen, of course, right? Um, but he could, probably could have been a little more judicious in how he's telling the story. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks, their father's flock, near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. He answered, Here I am. (laughs) It's the same thing that his grandfather had said to his great grandfather, right? That's what Isaac had said to Abraham. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. (laughs) Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. This is the, I mean... Right, we've seen this one too, right? We've seen this verse. We've seen this this conflict. We've seen how God's purpose for creation, God's desire for creation is shalom and unity and that humanity is just constantly working at cross purposes with that fundamental desire, even within families. I mean, even the original family couldn't escape this and here it's being played out at a, at a later time and with more with more players, but the same fundamental issue, jealousy. Jealousy of how this uh, sibling is viewed by God, jealousy how the sibling is viewed by parents, the, the um, conflict like between the brothers themselves. So Reuben said to them, "'Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, and lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father.'" So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the long robe of sleeves that he wore, and they threw him, uh, took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Uh, they probably thought he was going to drown, right, is the point of that, just sidebar. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Speaking of old rivalries, right? So these are the descendants of the rival to their heir, It's just layers and layers of interpersonal conflict. So they were coming up from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's not kill him. I mean, we can get something out of him for sure. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. That's a familiar number. (laughs) And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They had the long robe with the sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it's your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. All right. It's a really nicely told story. And um, now this, this is narrative has taken us into captivity which is where we know the kind of formative drama of like the formation of the nation will happen. It's going to happen in Exodus. And there's going to be this offhand reference to Joseph um, in the, at the beginning of Exodus or maybe it's at the end of Genesis and all these years go by and Pharaoh forgets about Joseph. Um, but it it still does, even though it's, a, it's its own separate literary cycle, even though it's in a very different style, even though it was probably written much later than those those tribal stories that have been passed down, it still does contain the, the fundamental issues of, of human behavior and, and human conflict. So the Judah and Tamar thing, um, it's just weird. And uh, it does not do anything for this narrative. It's kind of uh, Judah's own... Um, well, stuff. (laughs) I mean, if you read it, you know. So I I actually don't want to read it because there's not, I mean, it's got, it's its own little story that, um, I mean, definitely can continue some themes about humanity's inability to act right. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, we know that that's true. And the the broader story of Joseph's uh, narrative is, is more important, I think, for us. So let's keep going with 39. Unless somebody really wants to talk about Judah's weird relationship with Tamar. Thank you. (laughs) Now, Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of the pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So this is the, uh, we'll get this phrase a fair amount, the Lord was with. I mean, this shows up a lot in the Old Testament in general, but it, should, it, it implies God's favor, God's protection, God's guidance, and certainly uh, the hand of God, the will of God, is going to work through this dreamer. The Lord was with Joseph, this is verse 2, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did, To prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and with him there he had no concern for anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome and good looking. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, with me here, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he's put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then could I do this wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, she caught hold of his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called out to the members of her household and said to them, See, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard me raise my voice and cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Then she kept his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to insult me. But as soon as I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, This is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him. And put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph, there it is again, and showed him steadfast love. He, came, he gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care, because what? <laughs> the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. So providence is sometimes a tricky concept. And this is a really important distinction between uh, Calvinist and Methodist theology. So there's this concept. Am I spelling that right? Sovereignty. Maybe i be selling it. Sovereignty? The sovereignty of God. Like the, the uh, agency of God in the world. And the question is, How I'm going to to put verses, but I don't really mean that. I guess I mean kind of and. It's the relationship between sovereignty and free will. So for a Calvinist, um, in Calvinist theology, Baptist theology, non-denominational theology, um, this notion that God makes things happen is a a direct theological tie to this idea of how the hand of God works in the world. For a Methodist, which is to say, and I'm going to put up two words here, Um, Methodist theology is what's called Arminian, and that's from a guy named uh, Jacob Arminius. Not the country, Arminian. Armenia. So Arminian theology, and this truly is a versus Calvinist theology. Providence gets tricky because um, do we mean that God is making things happen, or do we mean that God is somehow at work in human action? So is God making me teach you right now these concepts? Or is God, hopefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, working through me to accomplish what God would desire that we all grow in our faith together? And it's, this is not how many angels can dance on the head of a pin stuff. Because it affects a lot of macro things in, our, in the way we look at, our, at God's relationship to the world. So anytime you hear somebody in popular theology or kind of pop culture or whatever say that God had a plan, I agree with that. God does have a plan. (laughs) Uh, God's plan is for shalom and unity. That's God's plan. God's plan is that we're all in a relationship with God, and as a Christian, I believe through Christ. Um, But I also firmly, as an Arminian, as a Methodist, because wesley really uh, was influenced significantly by jacob arminius so wesley i believe firmly in free will and so does god make things happen some a kid dies in a car accident god has a plan okay what do we mean by that god needed one more angel in heaven okay what what exactly are we saying there <laughs> are we saying that god caused that tragedy I mean, some theology would absolutely say that, that, we, that, we, that God causes things to happen that we just don't understand right now. Um, yeah, how? Um, well, I would say that Catholics tend more, well, so a, a Catholic would not um, emphasize sovereignty like a Calvinist would. A Catholic would talk more in terms of our kind of participation with God, very similar to Wesley. So, I mean, not Leslie in, but let's do this real quick. I promise you this is not a rabbit hole. (laughs) Okay, so you have, um, let's see, I'm going to do it this way. You guys know what chapters we're in, so I'm just going to erase all that. So you have the church, which really was a collection of churches in the New Testament era, right? So it was the church at Corinth, the church at Rome, the church at Ephesus. But ultimately, it comes to be one church. And the Bishop of Rome uh, is the, in the See of Peter. It's the way a Catholic would, would uh, phrase that. Um, Rome always plays kind of a, a predominant role. The first, you know, the first schism in the church was very early. It was between, uh, I think it was like in 451. There were some churches that split off, <laughs> and I'm not kidding you, over this mono, something called the monophysite controversy. And that is how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. So I'm not going to get into that. This was the first split of the church. The next split of the church happened in the uh, the thousands, like 1014 or something like that. And this was over um, the Filioque Clause. (laughs) So there's a line in the Nicene Creed, I think, that says, uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and Orthodox and the Son that's um, where that comes from and Orthodox churches were like, no, no only from the Father and Catholics were like, no, John very clearly says that Jesus gave the Spirit the day of the resurrection <laughs> that's what we say it's about it's really about money and power that's what everything's about so there was a, a split between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church here then in the 1500s well, it was 15, 20, 1, 20. What's the what's the Reformation? What's the theses? We just had the 500th anniversary. I think it's 1500, something like that. You have Luther who starts the, Re- the Reformation and that's about all kinds of corruption in the, in the Catholic Church. And there are three kind of schools of the Reformation. There's Luther, there's Calvin, and there's Zwingli. A guy named Zwingli is where you get the Anabaptist tradition promises not a rabbit hole. Calvin is kind of the Presbyterian Reformed tradition, and obviously L- Luther is the Lutherans. So, which of those do Wesleyans fall into? Trick question. None of them. So we're not in this. So, like these theological um, reformation,s reinterpretations of core tenets of Christianity uh, happen, but they're they're not. That's not our heritage. In What year did Henry VIII want a divorce? I used to have all these dates committed to memory. Henry VIII wanted a divorce. The Pope wouldn't give it to him. So what did he do? Started the Church of England. (laughs) Very high-minded theological differences. This is actually where Wesleyans come. So as I tried to assure my mom when I became a Wesleyan, (laughs) uh, and any time I talk to somebody who is coming from the Anglican or the Catholic tradition, I mean, there are differences in how we order the life of the church. Obviously, we don't believe in the authority of the Pope. Obviously, we don't believe that the magisterium of the church, the teaching of the church, is the predominant thing. That's what a Catholic believes. Um, but in terms of, like, the Trinity and fundamental issues of salvation and how we understand um, uh, justification and sanctification, I mean, these are all kind of just um, variations on a theme when you go from Wesleyanism to uh, Episcopalianism to the Catholic Church. What we're talking about with this influence of uh, like the sovereignty of God—it's going to bug me until I spell that right. Sovereignty, I think that's right. Like issues of how God functions in the world. This is a question for this part of the Reformation. Like we're we're pretty close to Lutherans on a lot of things. We have some fundamental disagreements with anybody who's in that Calvinist Anabaptist strain of theology. Are y'all entirely bored? It? Okay, are you with me? So, you, I mean, you're probably too nice to tell me even if you were bored. So, okay, so for Calvin, the fundamental organizing principle of Christian theology is something called TULIP. Have you, have you heard of this? So, So, think now of your, I mean, definitely your Baptist friends, definitely your non-denominational friends, Presbyterian friends, they're all coming at it from this perspective. I'm not judging this perspective, but I am drawing a distinction between the way we think about it and the way they think about it. So the first idea, the first notion is total depravity, that we are entirely corrupt and with no real good in us at all. Wesley kind of bought that. Wesley was pretty pessimistic about human nature, except he believed in something called pervenient grace. And for Wesley, prevenient grace helped us overcome our total depravity and empowered us to make a choice. I'll come back to that. Um, Gosh, I hadn't planned on talking about this. Uh, Unconditional election is the you, which means if you're chosen, you're chosen. There's nothing you can do about it. Does that sound like what Methodists believe? Uh Uh-uh. There's something called the limited atonement, which means that if you're not in this group, you're out of luck. Definitely not what Methodists believe. Um, Let's see. Oh my gosh. Limited atonement. Uh, I, I, I. Um, I'll come back to I. The P is perseverance of the saints. The colloquial version of this, and I promise you, you've heard it, is once saved, always saved. That once you, if you are in this, if you are part of the people blessed with limited atonement, and you are one of the ones that are unconditionally unconditionally elected, there's nothing you can do to lose it. Methodists do not believe in once saved, always saved. (laughs) We don't. Because we believe very strongly in free will. So, if if God is truly sovereign, and God has a plan, and God causes everything to happen in life, including the salvation of certain parts of humanity, then, I mean, all we do is kind of participate in it. But that's not where Wesleyans are. The eye's going to bug me till I think of it. But those, those three uh, make the point. So... You can see that on the subject of providence, how God, how the hand of God, how the will of God prevails in the world, it's kind of a complicated relationship between our free will and participating with that, and God actually acting as kind of puppet master in the world. So what we're going to see in the story of Joseph, I mean, Joseph is faithful, and Joseph has integrity, and Joseph is, a, is uh, an heir of the promise, but Joseph also acts on his own. And yes, the Lord is with him, but the Lord is able to ultimately save God's people through the faithfulness of uh, irresistible grace. Yeah. Ah, yes, thank you. Yes, I was going to do that. Thank you for doing that, Lorraine. Irresistible grace. Do, do Wesleyans believe in irresistible grace? We do not. We believe, it's, we, believe we can say no to God. Like that's how, that's how firmly we believe in free will. Uh, the, I mean, in the scripture this morning... The faithful young man walks away from Christ. He's free to do that. I mean, he's looking at Jesus and <laughs> still walking away from him. That's, but we believe that that's possible. The relationship between these two concepts theologically is the core of the theological distinction between somebody who is an Anabaptist or a Calvinist or a Neo Calvinist and someone who is firmly Methodist. Now, what Wesley believed is in the fall. Um, the articles of religion say we believe that humanity is inclined, inclined to evil, and to that perpetually. He's got a pretty negative view of human, uh, the human condition, which you don't have to read the paper very long to be on board with that. Uh, That's I got. Like the opinion section today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr said that. The only empirically provable doctrine of the Christian faith is the doctrine of original sin. Just read the, read the newspaper. It's pretty clear that we're pretty broken. But Wesley believed that there is something called pervenient grace, which is the grace that goes before, that restores our ability to choose the good. So that uh, it's not a limited atonement at all. It's open to everyone. Every human being can respond to God. That is a grace-based theology. But we have to respond. <laughs> because if we're free not to respond, if we're free to respond, that means we're free not to respond. That's the way relationships work. Um, so then what we do, this, this, by the way, is the reason that we baptize infants. We don't, have to, we don't believe in believer's baptism. I mean, it, it's fine if people wait. Like, there are plenty of Methodists who do not baptize their infants because they would rather that child make that choice for themselves at their confirmation as, as non-Catholics, how to your point about Catholicism, like we don't have to, we're not worried about babies going to hell if they don't get baptized. That's not part of our theology. That's not the way we think it works. <laughs> we believe that every human being has prevenient grace, and then there comes a time in our lives when we have to say yes to Christ. At that moment that we say yes to Christ, then we are what's called justified. And justification, this is another not minor distinction between us and Anabaptists or Calvinists, Justification is just the beginning of the story. (laughs) Like there are theological traditions where it's all about this. It's all about, I'm going to play as many verses as just as I am as it takes for you to come down and make a faith commitment. Again, I'm not, I said that a little judgmentally. It's fine. It's just a different emphasis. What we believe is that that's the beginning of the story. For Methodists, because we believe so significantly in free will, the point of the story for us unless you're the thief on the cross, and I'll come back to that. The point of the Christian journey is sanctification. So in sanctification then, so we've placed our faith in Christ, and then we let ourselves be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. And the Holy Spirit leads us to grow in our love for God and our fellow human beings. That's sanctification. That's the Christian journey. That's what it's all about. Wesley used the, um, the metaphor of a house. So pervenient grace is the porch. And you can think of God standing on, the, Jesus standing on the porch. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling to you and to me. And he's inviting us into a relationship long before we know anything about Jesus. So for those of us that raise our kids in the church, this is when we take them to Sunday school whether they want to go or not. <laughs> you know, they might go for the donuts, but they might catch a little Jesus while they're in there eating their donuts. This is what leads somebody who is... Uh, an alcoholic or a drug addict to think, oh, man, this is not the way God wants me to live. Maybe I need to get help from a 12-step group or a church. That's provenient grace. That's the porch of the house. And then when we say yes to Christ, when we say, yeah, I, I believe, I have faith in this Savior, then at that moment in Christian theology and the Methodist understanding of it, there is a, a relative change. And it's, this is legal, legal uh, language, like so it could be interpreted a little legalistically, but just the point is, before I was condemned and now I am not. It's a relative change. Nothing really changed in me other than my sentence, <laughs> to use that kind of language. and That's the doorway of the house. Nobody hangs out in the doorway of the house. We don't count how many people walk in the door. I mean, we do, because we're Methodists, we count everything. We count who walks through the door, but that's, I mean, that's just the very beginning of the story. And then we explore the rest of the house, the rest of our lives. That's the journey of sanctification. So uh, then the question of providence and the story of Joseph, to come back full circle, uh, where then is God? How does the hand of God move us, woo us, call us? How does the will of God prevail in our lives? Well, I mean, in Methodist theology and um, circling all the way back to Hal's question, Catholics would say the same thing. It's a matter of us using our free will to respond to Christ's invitation, God's invitation. Now, obviously, Joseph doesn't know anything about Jesus, but Joseph does know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and his dad. And the story is very clear that the Lord is with him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a really good question. So he had very specific dreams that came true, So what do we do with that? Okay, this is going to sound like I'm um, dodging that (laughs) question, but I'm really not. So in classic kind of orthodox Christian theology, and I'm absolutely orthodox on this, we believe that God is omnipotent. We believe that God is omnipresent. And we believe that God is omniscient. The question is, this is... You know what that means? All powerful, everywhere, all knowing. So there are two different concepts of time in the Bible. One is Kairos, and one is Chronos or Kronos. This is the way we experience time. Earlier today, my son won the semis. Next week, he's going to the finals. Um, you know, we we only understand time in a linear fashion, but an omniscient God knows the end. It's not that God, like if God knows that I'm going to live to be 100, it's not that when my time is up, God zaps me and brings me home. We use that kind of language. Not We don't say zap, but called me home, brought me home. I mean, but God knows the reality that's going to happen. And so I, I think from a kind of Arminian, Wesleyan interpretation of this particular story, we would say, well, God gave him that dream because God knew it was going to happen, but that's not that's not because he's making it happen. Someone who is not in a different, you know, I mean, you can interpret it the other way, right? I mean, you could faithfully say, well, no, clearly God said what was going to happen, and it happened. Because God caused it. That that word actually comes from my favorite passage of the New Testament, Romans 8, which is very problematic. So I just usually go, when I'm reading it, let's kind of skip over it. Um, yeah, it's a good question. But you, then you get into some other how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? So does, it, does predestination mean that we're all predestined because God knows that we're followers of Jesus and sometimes we're going to do it better than other times, but ultimately our salvation is assured because we have our faith in Christ? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty safe argument. Does it mean that God picked me to be saved and regardless of what I do, I'm going to be saved? I don't think that's the way it works. But God certainly knows my um, destiny. And I know sometimes this are kind of mind-bendy, like technicality questions, but it really does affect how you, um, like, you like this piece you got to get right or clear, right or wrong, we'll find out when we get to heaven, <laughs> get clear because it affects how you interpret everything else. This question of God's sovereignty versus free will is a major one. Um, the emphasis on justification versus sanctification is a, another major one. We've talked a lot about how we interpret the Bible. That's another one. That's true. So then prayer is another, <laughs> another complicating factor. <laughs> so I ask, I get. Hello. But Jesus says so. Jesus, man, he's always throwing his curveballs. Unfortunately, he was, not, he was neither Methodist nor Calvinist, so uh, he did not fit neatly in anybody's box, I guess. Or, but here's the other thing he always told us to say, he specifically told us to pray like this, thy will be done. I can give you my laundry list, but ultimately thy will be done. And I am crystal clear as many times as I've read this thing, that human beings absolutely can change God's mind, (laughs) right? There's no doubt about that. It's truly a relationship. I mean, this is truly, um, we've seen it in Genesis, um, so, I think uh, it's a good one. <laughs> the The problem here, the problem with prayer. Here's the problem with prayer: is I really want my little kid with cancer to be cured, and my little kid with cancer doesn't get cured. And there are plenty of really terrible theologies that would tell. Because I've heard it, <laughs> or heard people recovering from it, that would tell that family they didn't have enough faith. Like that's where. getting straight in our theology is so super important. God does not kill kids with cancer. That's not the way God works in the world. Um, And then just on that particular thing, (laughs) those are two different words. (laughs) A cure means I get well in this life. I'm healed means I'm good in this life for the one to come. And, um, you know, I just feel like there's a great... uh, Anne Lamott is very irreverent. People are hot and cold on Anne Lamott, but she said the opposite of um, faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. (laughs) I think that's pretty good. Like, so when we think about when we're talking about how Methodists interpret um, theology and Scripture, uh, it is always good to to be clear about what we how we interpret it, and be clear about how we make sense of these texts, trust in the Holy Spirit's guiding us, but also having a fair amount of humility about that. I mean, Calvin could have been right. I'll buy him a cup of coffee in heaven if he is. I'm sure Wesley was not happy. If if Calvin was right when Wesley got to heaven, he was going to be super annoyed about that. Because, <laughs> you know, uh, the other thing is Wesley was 200 years after the Reformation, so he was not contemporaries with these guys. So he's having a cross-century uh, argument with them. All right, we've got five more minutes. I, I, intention, I intentionally left three weeks for Joseph because I and a week for. We got plenty of time in the schedule. We got, you know, we're doing fine on this because I figured some stuff like this would come up at some point. And this is a logical place to be talking about these. So I don't, I don't think we're gonna get into forty because now we're getting into the dreams and the prisoners and. Um, any other thoughts or questions or, so okay. So next week, I am going to be in Sunday on Sunday. I'm going to be, it's going to Halloween. And I'm not sure the last time Halloween was on a Sunday. So we're going to be talking about fear and why we don't need to be afraid. So that, that should be fun. Um, pumpkins are out there. Pumpkin patch is going gangbusters. You know, that supports our youth ministry. We have a lot of volunteers that help, um, but ultimately it funds the, the youth ministries of the church. So um, they did Honda, Honda partnered with us. They're a good partner. Really good. So I'm going to close this with a prayer and, uh, Call it a day, gracious God. We are thankful for the big questions, and we're thankful for the freedom to ask the big questions, and for the the passion we get to show in responding to them. Uh, The bottom line is, we know that you, the Lord, are with us as well in a very real way, all throughout our lives. That's the promise of the Messiah, uh, whose birth we will celebrate soon enough. So we pray that as we leave this place, as we go back out into the world that we might live into our church's mission statement of uh, loving God, serving others, and transforming lives, and that we might preach the gospel at all times and, when necessary, use words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.